Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Christine Legros, the owner of Spindrift Hand Mitts. Christine was born and raised here and has a keen interest in the people, places, and things that make this island of Newfoundland unique. Hello, Christine. Hi, Dale. And welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. You are our very first guest. I feel extra honored now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome. We're delighted to have you here as our first guest on the show. Um, I wanted to start off, I guess, by talking a little bit about Spindrift, uh, what it is, and and, uh, how it got started and how you got started as a knitter. Maybe that's where we'll start. We'll start off at the very beginning. Uh, What was your first experience with knitting? Where did you learn to knit? Oh, I was about six years old. It was a combination of my mom teaching me how to knit and then my teacher at Bishop Spencer College where I went to school from kindergarten to grade nine. It was an all-girls school. Yes. It was very strict. It taught you all of life's lessons, including your reading, writing, and arithmetic. They taught you everything else as well, including knitting and all sorts of crafts. So who was your, who was your teacher? Uh, Mrs. Garland. Uh, she did the formal knitting class in grade two we started. We knit a cotton dishcloth. And it was a dishcloth that was knit out of the shopping string that uh, old-fashioned stores used to use to wrap mm-hmm. up ham and bologna and things like that. Yeah, the old shops would have those spools of string at the ceiling, and the string yeah. would run down, and mm-hmm. the shopkeepers would wrap up the packages. Yes, yeah. so yeah. I have very fond connection with shopping string off spools. <laughs> <laughs> so um, she taught us how to teach that in grade two. She was left-handed, right. and a lot of people thought left-handed people could knit. And we had 42 girls in the class, and there was only probably three or four of them that were left-handed, I being one of them. And Bishop Spencer was good. They didn't force you to write with your right hand. (laughs) So um, uh, she she was successful teaching me how to knit. And then in grade three, she became our grade three teacher. She switched classes, and by that point, uh, she'd started teaching us other things as well. And my mom had given me some uh, beehive wool to knit with. And I used to really practice my cast on garter stitch. But my mom was right-handed, and I was (laughs) (laughs) hot-tempered and very stubborn. So uh, it took the combination of the left-handed teacher and the right-handed mother to turn me into a knitting knitting So so you were not a great student, were you? No. uh, (laughs) I was probably six, and my mom had got me started off. And she left the kitchen. I'd made a mistake, so I'd balled it all up and threw it in the garbage bucket before she got back in. I I couldn't handle the trying to look at a right-handed person teach me how to knit. So is there a difference uh, for for the way that you knit when when you're left-handed? A lot of people knit differently that are left-handed, but because my mom was right-handed and my left-handed teacher stood at the front of the classroom, so I saw everything in reverse, I learned to knit as a right-handed person and didn't realize it. Right, yeah. So, um, as as a as a girl, what what kind of things were you knitting? I mean, you talked about that little dishcloth that was the first thing you knit. Uh, what kind of things did you, did oh, you knit when you were young? Bishop Spencer College, you learned not to waste your time. Yes. It had to be 100% productive. So, by the time we got to grade four, we were knitting socks for UNICEF oh, yeah. to send overseas. And to the children in Korea and other Asian countries... And we were taught to knit tube socks, no heels, uh, grafted toe, and they were knit to pearl too. 
and everybody had to knit a pair. And what do you mean by a grafted toe? Uh, toe is a, a me- method of grafting a toe is so there's no lumpy seam. Okay. And it's the preferred method. It's the professional way to finish off your sock. Yeah. So even though we didn't have to learn to turn a heel at that age, we were taught how to graft a toe. So at Bishop Spencer, um, how how many grades uh, did you did you knit? Did you knit all the way through Bishop Spencer? Off and on we did, yeah. but generally speaking, knitting was one of the first things we learned. The kindergarten, we learned to sew. We had to sew our own uh, apron to wear at recess time, and then we had to learn how to embroider at five years old to make our placemat that you had to eat your lunch, your recess off of. Yeah. So we learned uh, basic embroidery in kindergarten in grade one and sewing in kindergarten in grade one. Then we went to knitting, and we learned how to crochet in grade two, but I tried that left-handed. That wasn't a big success. <laughs> <laughs> I had to wait till I was an adult and went to the YWCA and learn how to crochet right. because it was too strict a Spencer. It really freaked me out trying to... The first thing they gave us to crochet was a pin cushion hat with thimble holders. A sun, uh, sunbonnet sue used to be a quilting pattern okay. and an embroidery pattern, but they had Sunbonnet Sue's hat as a crochet test for us. And the little hat, the crown portion is where you stowed your thimble, and it had like a felt layer for the pins and cushions, pins and needles, like a pin cushion. I couldn't conquer that hat. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> so so that's, that seems impressive to me, that uh, that they were teaching young girls at that time, that yes. kind of level of, of technical Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. We, we were doing needlepoint by grade eight, yeah. uh, you know, needlepoint cushions and huckaback weaving. And so I don't know what lo- huckaback weaving is. <laughs> What's that? It's called Swedish something or other, Swedish embroidery maybe now, yeah. but we had to make our sewing kit bag with uh, huckaback weaving and then we put all our sewing supplies in there so by grade seven or grade eight we were making our own clothes with on sewing machines and hmm. learning how to quilt patterns and applique things like that and was it solely a girl's uh, curricula i guess the oh, school was definitely. all girls right? yes we learned girls. to yeah. cook we had to do uh a uh, Welsh rarebit and eggs Benedict as uh, <laughs> well, cooking know, class and spinach I know where to come souffle. For breakfast now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing, and of course, all the boys went to Bishop Field College. Right, they learned carpentry skills and yeah. all fine things like that. Now, did boys ever learn how to knit? Do you think? I'm not sure. I do believe. I believe uh, John Crosby went to Bishop Spencer for kindergarten because. Then they take the boys and put them at Bishop Field. So you could probably ask John Crosby <laughs> to see if, they, <laughs> if, if he, he was, knows if he can remember. If, if he had boys, to sew his own apron, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if boys learn to knit, I doubt it. I yeah. think it was very gender, yeah, and separate. H- historically, did did were there men that knitted? Oh, historically in Newfoundland, bachelor fishermen knit their own trigger mitts and their own socks. There were no women in their lives to mm-hmm. knit for them. Uh, a lot of them lived with their brothers, and if they didn't know how to knit, they didn't have any socks or trigger mitts or a hat. Yeah, uh, They would have died of hypothermia out on the open ocean <laughs> <laughs> without it, so they knit out of necessity. Right. I do believe men were the inventors of knitting way back in 
Egyptian times. Yeah, because we talk about knitting nets, and you use a, 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 a needle. Yes, a but that's more needle, like but crochet. But it is more like crochet, yeah, or, uh, yeah. or macrame, macrame even, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's closer closer to that than it is to knitting like with two needles. Knitting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, when I was little, we shared our house with another family. They rented the third floor. I lived on Queens Road. And uh, that little girl, her two uncles were both fishermen from Admiral's Cove up near Cape Royal, and they could knit fabulous trigger mitts and socks. Mm. You, you mentioned trigger mitts. That's one of the things that I wanted to uh, to talk to you about. Um, because it is one of those things that is kind of a traditional knitwear. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe to start off, what are some of the more traditional items that that you knit or that you want to see people knitting in Newfoundland? Like we talk about trigger mitts, are there other things? That, right. Uh, yep. Trigger mitts for sure. Everybody used to knit trigger mitts, and it died out a little bit. And we need to make sure that trigger mitts don't fade away. They're an icon in Newfoundland uh, as far as tourism. And what uh, tourists expect to see in Newfoundland, just like they want to see an iceberg and a whale, they expect souvenir stores to carry hand-knit woolen trigger mitts. So now, if someone was listening who isn't a Newfoundlander mm-hmm. and doesn't know what a trigger mitt is, how would you describe it? Oh, it's a double-layer, doubly warm hand-knit mitten that has a thumb. And instead of just a spot for your other four digits, <laughs> there's a separate finger for your index finger or the finger you'd put through a trigger of a rifle right. to shoot a gun. So it was you wouldn't have to take your mitt off when That's you were hunting. Right. Yeah. And usually, I'm, I'm pretty sure most people would take their glove off if they were hunting, but it sure helps if you're jigging a codfish on a cold day mm. to have on a trigger mitt. It's perfect for ice fishing mm. and all types of different things, lighting a fire, striking a match. I wouldn't necessarily try to shoot a moose with a trigger mitt on, though, because <laughs> <laughs> it would be a bit slippery on the metal <laughs> trigger. Yeah. 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 So uh, the trigger mitts, and the other thing are homespun socks, yeah. hand-knit socks, and probably the most famous hand-knit socks are the ones that all the Newfoundland women knit for the soldiers of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment that went and fought overseas in World War One and then in World War Two. Uh that makes me so emotional, I can't even talk about it. <laughs> it's really an important part of our history, and it needs to be cherished. Yeah. So people need to keep on knitting mitts and socks yeah. to help keep our history alive. That um, that period, that First World War period, there was the, the Women's Patriotic Association. Yes. And there these amazing photographs of these ladies with their mm-hmm. fabulous hats, you know, yeah. knitting at Government House. And, yeah. and they knit quite a quite a remarkable uh, amount of stuff that they would send overseas. That's for sure. I remember seeing a picture at the rooms a few years ago. It was a black and white photo, and it showed a block and tackle. Uh, it's kind of like a pallet load of what looked like salt fish all lashed up and being hoisted aboard a ship. And when you read the caption, it was socks. And they were on a pallet, and they were getting loaded to go overseas. And I was like, oh, my gracious me. You could even see some of the little stripes because the stripes used to designate what size the socks were so they could hand them out quickly to the soldiers. And I couldn't believe that those socks. I'd seen another picture later that showed them all stacked on shelves, and it looked just like dried salt fish. And I was thought, what a connection to what it means to be living on an island in the North Atlantic when all the socks look like dried cod. (laughs) 
That's so, how they look to me anyway. <laughs> so what, what do you think the value is in preserving some of these old traditions like, like knitting? Knitting um, is good for your mind. It's lo- like yoga for your mind. It's important for your physical health and your mental health and your emotional health. And it keeps us connected and makes us remember what it means to live in a cold climate out in the ocean on an island. And it gives you time to think when you're knitting. And you're producing something that has value. It's going to keep your hands warm. It's going to keep your feet warm. It's going to help you survive hypothermia. And I can tell you a story of of that, um, yeah, sure. surviving hypothermia. You know, back in, a, in the early 90s, late 80s, everybody gave up knitting sheeple sweaters. Polar fleece had been invented, and it, it's a petroleum product, <laughs> byproduct. And everybody started wearing hoodies and zippy up polar fleece tops. I had gone to Iceland on a trade mission with the provincial government a few years after that, and we had gone to meet with search and rescue people And a gentleman told me a story about uh, a boatload of fishermen in Iceland that had gone out to sea and their boat had capsized. And it was a very sad story. Uh, When the search and rescue people found them, all, all of them had died from hypothermia except for one fisherman. And when they brought the bodies ashore... The only fisherman that survived had been wearing a 100% Icelandic wool sweater, mm. and all the ones that died of hypothermia were wearing polar fleece tops. Mm. And I went, I rest my case <laughs> about the insulating properties of wet wool. <laughs> yeah. So it's very important to remember in a modern world where everything is instant and everything is mass-produced and you never know who made it, you don't know the hand of the maker, it's really important for our mental and physical health to remember all the steps that you have to go through to make a product from start to finish and how worthwhile you'll feel when you do that and you, even if you give it away or you sell it, you see that person wearing it and know that you've uh, done that with your own hands. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of that fisherman story, there's, a, there's an Irish play about... Um, uh, about a body that is that washes up, and they're able to identify the body by the the pattern of the oh, sweater. His, he was wearing a Guernsey, yeah. <laughs> and it, uh, the pattern of the sweater would have said the town he'd come from. Yeah. Now, did, yeah. did that happen here? Were there regional patterns? Yes, especially for trigger mists. There's yeah. the St. Mary's Bay Diamond, and then people in Bonavista Bay used to knit different patterns, and people around St. John's. And around 80% of the knitting in Newfoundland is done between, say, Willingate and St. Mary's Bay around the northeast coast. Not as much of it is done on, say, the Port of Port Peninsula or the southwest coast. So uh, you knew if, if the fisherman was wearing trigger mitts, most likely he was from the northeast coast. Hmm. And depending on the pattern, if he was wearing St. Mary Bay diamond mitten, you knew he was probably from St. Mary's Bay or St. Vincent's, Peters River, up around there. Yeah. So what is being done today to preserve some of those patterns? Oh, we, we're just working on a project. Shirley Scott and I, anybody who's a knitter in the city, <laughs> probably knows Shirley as Shirley Shirl the, the Pearl. Pearl. Yeah. <laughs> she had spent a couple of decades collecting uh, pairs of mittens that she considered traditional Newfoundland mittens, and she kept that collection. And then last year she gave it to me uh, to, for safekeeping at Spindrift. <laughs> and then she and I decided uh, we'd try publishing some of those patterns. So we've spent a year or so at that, and 
We're through our second printing now. We're going back for third printing of the first set of four, and we're working on our second grouping uh, for release in the fall, probably when the Fiber Arts Conference is on in Gross Morn. We will have two sets of those patterns done. So that's what we're trying to work on to keep it going on, you know, personally, so that we feel we're doing our part. Mm-hmm. And what's the what's the market for those patterns? Who's Who's buying them? Oh, I've sold them so far. We, we only released them about six weeks ago, and in 10 days, our first printing sold out. That's amazing. Went back yeah. for the second. Uh, lots of people in the United States. Every province in Canada has ordered some, and we've had a lady in the U.K. order some and somebody who lives in Scotland. Most of them are people that are from Newfoundland, and they write me letters when they order their pattern. They'll tell me a, like a two-page story about one lady in particular. She'd moved to Fort McMurray for work 28 years ago, and she hasn't managed to get home since. And she looks for any link to Newfoundland at all. And she instantly ordered the patterns and is going to knit them. Hmm. Yeah, lots of stories like that. Nobody just says, may I order some patterns, please? They tell me where they're <laughs> from. I've got new Facebook friends because of it. Yeah, yeah they tell me their life story. Yeah, so that there really is a, a link then between kind of that physical object and the act of making mm-hmm. it and, and that perception of heritage, you know, yes. where, where you are from as a yes. person. Yeah. And one lady in the United States ordered them. Uh, we've e- uh, emailed and text messaged back and forth. Um, she's going to come here for a visit. We're probably going to go there for a visit. And she couldn't come here this summer because she'd spent her uh, holiday money to go run with the sheep. I didn't know <laughs> there was like, you know, running with the bulls in Spain. There's a city in the United States, and I think it's in the state of Idaho maybe, where they run with the sheep. They release the sheep and run through town with them, and it's a big annual event. <laughs> I wouldn't have known that if I wasn't publishing knitting patterns. It sounds very exciting. So, so while we're talking about sheep, um, where do you get your, your material? Where do you get your wool? Oh, uh, since the beginning and before I was Spindrift, we were something called Knitters Anonymous because we were all addicted. And um, that started back in the early 80s, late 70s. I have always made sure that I've gotten all my, I call it raw wool, lots of people call it fleece, from local farmers. Because in the modern world, they have no purpose for the wool. It gets dumped in landfills, buried in gardens. And I thought that was a ridiculous waste of a very valuable resource. So one of the farmers in particular that gets that wool for me is Mr. Howard Morey up in the Ghouls, and he produces lots of local lamb. And for many years, I'd phone him, and, and they bring it to my house. And then I call Dame Ross, and we ship it off in a tractor trailer <laughs> to get it spun and dyed. Mm-hmm. So where does that happen? In New Brunswick, at Briggs and Little Woolen Mills. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been in business for more than 150 years, and there isn't anywhere in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador to get wool spun in the quantity that I needed. Yeah. Was was there at one point a woolen mill here that yeah, would have spun that? Yeah, there was one out in the Codroy Valley ah, that okay. was really uh, well known. Yeah. And they went out of business quite some time ago. Right. Yeah. There's lots of local spinners and knitters and dyers. And they work in much smaller batches, though, do they? Oh, yeah. definitely. And yeah. uh, one of the people in Newfoundland that's really doing it from start to finish is Linda Lewis at Bay Naughty in Chapel's Cove. Mm-hmm. Uh, she even uh, helps the lambs, helps the moms with the lambs, and she has her own 
hobby farm and everything. So it's interesting that, you know, we're talking about knitting, but it, it yes. really is a whole series of, of traditions that are all kind of linked together. Oh, so it's, it's knitting and together. carding and spinning and, and animal husbandry. All yes, these things are part of, of a together. system. Yeah. yeah. And years ago, it's part of what kept rural communities alive. Uh, there wasn't a lot of money and people used the barter system. So if one person had a cow and they were, you know, had, had the fresh cream and the person down the street had some extra knitting, if the lady with the cow had lots of children, the lady who was the really good knitter would <laughs> supply the mittens for the cream, you know, and, and all rural Newfoundland survived on the barter system. Mm. So as we move forward then, you know, this is kind of linked to issues of sustainability and rural development, this idea that we could actually produce more of this stuff locally. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. I, I not only with the knitting. I mean, it's beyond me. <laughs> I'm going off on a tangent now. Why we need to eat carrots from California and Israel <laughs> when it's a root vegetable and Elliston is down near the root capital of the world, root cellar capital of the world, and our soil is suited to potatoes and turnips and carrots yeah. and all the root vegetables. Why we need to import them and run out in three days if the ferry shut down it's beyond me why why we have to do that so i think uh, we need to think long and hard before we turn all our gardens into lawns as opposed to vegetable patches yeah. and why aren't there more sheep and i know there's coyotes now but there's so many ways we try to take the easy way out but it's not the easy way out at all it's the incorrect way out so, we need to think about getting back to our roots. So in terms of getting back to our roots, uh, how how has the tradition of knitting changed over the years? Or, or where do you see it now as, as opposed to it was where, when you were a it's girl? It's a huge trend right now for knitting. Uh, people are starting to call themselves makers of craft. And a lot of people are turning to knitting. They like... Uh, designer yarns and cowls and fancy little hats and all kinds of really fancy trendy things and that's going to keep the craft of knitting alive and I'm all for that and while everybody's doing all those modern trendy things and paying $40 for skinny yarn or trying to figure out how to dye it themselves I'm a hundred percent in favor of it but I also want everyone to realize that a lot of wool comes off a sheep <laughs> and yeah. it's what kept us alive 200 years ago so we didn't die of frostbite and hypothermia yeah so where where are the next generation of knitters learning their skills oh uh, some of them are learning it at the anna templeton center in the city of st john's which is a school for for craft and, right and uh, the anna templeton arts, yeah. center for our craft and design on yeah. upper street and it's part of the college of the north atlantic and it's they teach the textile uh, part of that curriculum and uh, a lot of people still learn how to knit from their friends and their family and going to little knitting groups uh, there's a store in town cast on cast off they have big comfy chairs and they let you come down and and knit and chat and have a cup of tea and there's no high pressure sales <laughs> so it's really still a very much a community effort um, many years ago there were knitting bees where people sat around and did their knitting, and I guess it's still the modern knitting bee still exists. You can go knitting on Tuesday afternoons at the Arts and Culture Center in the library, and it's it'll all help keep it alive. And you've seen some of these traditional uh, patterns, like the like the trigger mitts, kind of come back. You, mm -hmm. you, you said that they, they kind of declined for a while, and now they're yeah. starting to, to come Hopefully back. Hopefully they'll all come back again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
do, do you think we need to see more uh, programming in the schools? Uh, you know, you you talked about how that's where you learned to knit. Do, do oh, we, definitely. How do we how do we get how do we get kids? <laughs> if you're getting engaged? started on the whole school <laughs> curriculum thing, I'm amazed how early children get out of school these days. And when I went to school, you you learned the whole thing. You got a you know you learned how to read, write, all kinds of mathematical things, science, biology. But there was a whole component to teach you how to survive during your lifetime and all the skills you needed to get through every day. So I think there should be at least an hour of classroom time each day to physical education. And I think there should be an hour classroom time each day to not only learn craft and how to use your hands and mind combined, but how to take care of your finances and what it means to have a bank account, not get into debt. <laughs> I think schools shouldn't get out till five o'clock in the afternoon, but that's just me. <laughs> After you've learned all these practical, practical things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you are obviously a very passionate uh, Newfoundlander. I mean, you really feel that, oh, that our heritage I is important. I tried important. to move away once. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I got and transferred with a job I had. And it didn't work. work. Oh, I was like, how fast can I get back to Newfoundland? <laughs> so I don't mind going somewhere for three weeks at a time, but I would never be able to uproot and leave here forever. Yeah. What would you like to see, say, say 50 years from now or 100 years from now? What would you like to know that it would, would be happening in terms of our heritage or our traditions? I would like to see that the historical buildings are preserved. For example, in the town of Bonavista right now, I love that they're doing up all those heritage properties. Yeah. My mom and dad were both born in Bonavista, and I, I absolutely love that place. And for many years, it was declining. So uh, I would like to see the whole province of Newfoundland and Labrador, and the island of Newfoundland in particular, uh, stay in a way that people would come here, and it would be like they stepped back in a, you know, they were in a time warp, yeah. and they would see how... Newfoundland looked a hundred years ago, and it does need modern conveniences. I'm not for you know, not vaccinating your children and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you really need the modern, sensible conveniences, so you know you're healthy and germ-free. But I would love the architecture preserved, and I would love to see a lifestyle where people still use their hands to do something productive. And I'd like to see vegetables growing in gardens and codfish in the net and things like that. Very good. Well, thank you, Christine. Thank oh. you for coming and speaking with us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me here. It was a pleasure. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, which is a production of CHMR Radio in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>